everybody. Welcome to the Summit Bid Podcast. Hello. A yet another fantastic episode on this fantastic day. Indeed. If you can have a fantastic day in 2020. That's true. Um, it's always up for <laughs> up for debate. Up for debate. The, um, the yeah, just a moment ago we heard about a wildfire nearby us. So it's a I know, right? It's just, just never ends. Par for the course for 2020. So today we are going to be going over some follow up about the Apple M1 chip news last week. We're also going to go over the new FX6 announcement from Sony. And mm. at the end, we're going to kind of round things out with a conversation about our experience with camera adventure bags and. Uh, trying to figure out how to carry a lot of uh, expensive camera equipment into the backcountry. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but we'll get started off here today by uh, going over some of the new stuff that's come out about the M1 chip. Do you want to go over that? Yeah, well, basically we theorized last week that like, you know, it, we it was um it wasn't so much we just didn't have a lot of information yet. Like we had what Apple told us and it sounded amazing, but we didn't have any real, nobody had used in the real world. And now a week and a half later, um, turns out the M1 is crazy, crazy good. And mm -hmm. people love it. And uh, it's definitely the future of computing, probably. Indeed, yeah. It is Geekbench. Has it the for the 13-inch MacBook Pro with the M1 chip, chip excuse me. The uh, single core score is sixteen eighty eight, and the multi core score is an incredible seventy two seventy seven. And just to put that in perspective, the multi core score on the sixteen inch MacBook Pro that's sitting on the desk right in here in front of me is um, sixty eight sixty seven. So it's better than um, oh wow than this one. Oh right. Um, so we also we said last week that we would um, install macOS Big Sur. And I think we both did. Mm -hmm. And uh, so far, my experience with it has been very positive overall. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks amazing. Yeah, it um, really does. Uh, you know, the design of it, it's it's very kind of fresh. There were some things that are like you have to kind of get used to. Um, everything is uh, more spread out. We'll kind of put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything like the... Uh uh, the back and forth on uh, Safari show previous page that's in like a different place and it's there's less information at the top of the screen stuff like that right right um, on those toolbars but, but the new Safari is great yeah for sure it uh, it has um, it seems fast I mean there's been a couple of instances where um, it hasn't been uh, what working compatible with some like for instance um in squarespace editing websites has not been great mm. um and I, I know that squarespace has said like you know they prefer to be edited in chrome but sometimes i forget to switch over to chrome when i'm going to do that and then mm. do it in um yeah google earth used to not even work in safari i, I don't think that. it still does i no, don't it think does. The, you can, oh it does you now can load up google earth and oh nice did that the other day. Of course, I mostly use the app, um, which I don't know if the app's just Google Earth Pro is just a uh, a portal over to a web thing. You know how how a lot of those apps are just they're kind of fancy ways to open up up the app in the right. web. Um, but uh, I mostly use that. But I did try it just the other day because I I hadn't actually installed it on the 
new MacBook oh, Pro yeah. 16 inch, well, which I got just a couple months ago, but right, not not saucy about that at all. <laughs> uh, I have a question. If you had to do it over, if I had to do it over right now, well, I think that the I would probably have gone with the 13-inch MacBook Pro with the M1 chip mm -hmm. because I would want to save the $1,000 to buy a 16-inch M1 chip, whatever it's going to be, the 16-inch MacBook Pro that's coming with the Apple Silicon right? probably in a year. So I probably would have gone for that. Um, for those of you out there that maybe missed last week, the reason why I'd go for the MacBook Pro is because it does have the fan. Right, right. I do a lot of things that's CPU intensive for a long period of time. Right. So I would need the fan, so I couldn't do the air, even though the air is actually basically identical as is the... Uh, right. Well, and then I think um, you can add more storage. You know, don't quote me, but I think you can actually add more storage to the... Um, the 13-inch MacBook Pro. Oh, and it has better battery life, too. Oh, and know. yes, and better battery life, yeah. I'm not usually straining my battery life that much, but actually on that note and coming back to macOS, um, I have had a one kind of note of a glitch. I actually kind of have two notes for glitches I've noticed. Uh, the oh, first really? one is uh, that LG monitor I have at home. I talked about it. I've, I might have talked about it a few times. Uh, I've noticed that it doesn't seem to be pushing enough power to the MacBook anymore. Interesting. Um, just since you charge. just since you switched to uh, Big Sur. That is when I noticed it. Uh, huh. I noticed that if you click on it, it'll have the logo like it's charging, but when you click on it, it will say um, uh, insufficient power to charge or something. And it, the battery doesn't actually increase. It doesn't really drop either. So I'm not really running a, a power deficit, but I'm wondering if that's just a glitch with that LG monitor. You have the 27 inch. Have you noticed that at all? No, no, I haven't had no issues. Um, really, like I said, the only thing that's popped up is um, uh, editing Squarespace in the new Safari. That's mm. literally been the only thing. And that I just switched over to Chrome and it was fine. Mm. Um, so uh, you can add the same amount of internal storage to the MacBook Air or the MacBook Pro. Interesting. What is inch. the max? Uh, two terabytes. So it's... Can you do five terabytes on the 16-inch MacBook Pro? You can do... I believe so. Um, I will confirm that. Yeah. But um, we're doing a lot of Googling today, apparently. Indeed. While he's looking at that, the other notation that I had was the conversations and messages are not seeming to update reliably. Yeah, that's true. I have been noticing that there's been some. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will agree with everyone that it's up to 8 terabytes. Wow. For $2,200, you can put 8 terabytes in a 16-inch MacBook Pro. So That wouldn't be... I mean, that would be fun. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that would be... I mean, I guess... <laughs> How much... So the total cost for that laptop is $5,000 then? Um, if you did... Um, just the 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 top tier 16 inch MacBook Pro and didn't customize anything but the storage. It would be five thousand even. Mm. Um, if you maxed it out, let's just do a maxed out. Um, a maxed out 16 inch MacBook Pro is sixty six ninety nine. So sixty six so. 
you know, basically. Uh, yeah, after tax and everything, you're going to be looking at seven thousand dollars probably after tax. Oofta. So I mean, yeah, I could see it at that point. It would start getting difficult. I mean, I don't know. Like the the Mac Pro is such an interesting thing because I would love to have one, but it is a desktop and it's it's hard to like buying a desktop no matter how powerful it is i mean mm. you you're still sometimes trying to fit a square peg through a round hole which can right. be a, a, right. a problem but of course on the flip side to that sometimes it it i'm sure for some people in particular it feels like they're trying to get a lot more power out of like they're frustrated by the limited power you can actually get in a notebook uh, so that's always a, an interesting thing and i feel like i've spent a lot of time writing that line between needing a laptop needing a desktop that kind of general area right right so um yeah there we go that's kind of follow-up we spent probably way too long on (laughs) um so let's talk about the fx9 or fx6 fx oh yeah fx6 (laughs) that keeps getting crossed in my head for some reason we're gonna talk about the fx9 though as well because it is important to notate All right, so the new FX6 specs sheet is a 10.2 megapixel sensor. Which is the same as the S3. The same as the S3, except a different aspect ratio. Well, yeah, they're just counting. It's... I guess is it actually a different aspect ratio in it, or is the that just what they're counting? The physical sensor is a different size. Okay, so it's sixteen mm. by nine, so that's where the two megapixels is going. Is right. the top and the bottom is getting right. cut off? But if you shoot video, which you probably do if you own an S three, it doesn't change anything because I don't even think you can shoot stills on the FX nine. That'd be weird. That would be weird. Um, so you can shoot full frame, ten bit, four two two. Uh, DCI 4K up to 120 frames per second. Very nice. I will notate a weird quirk. Um, 4K 24P in all modes does not have autofocus, but 23.936, the the standard, Mm -hmm. does, of course, have full autofocus, as does 60 and 120. Weird. But only autofocus is only in those three frame rates. So you only have autofocus in 23.96 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have it in 60 and you have it in 120. You can pick pretty much any frame rate in there, but only those three are going to give you autofocus. In Interesting. Um, the base ISOs are, and this time they're saying there's two dual, even though the research seems to show that they basically perform the same as the A7S III. You mm. have 800 as your low end, 12,800 on the high end. Um, I believe that's the, the testing seems to show that's about the same. Right, that makes sense. You've got the Bion's XR, XR yeah. processor, which should be giving you four times more performance than what you saw out of the FS5, which is what this camera is actually replacing, mm. is the FS5 Mark II. It's got the very right. similar body and everything else, even though it's a different sensor size because it is full frame. Um, it's got the same card. Um, it's got the same memory card. As the S3. As the S3, so you can do the... CF Express Type A cards or dual SD cards. Uh, it's got S Log three and S Cinetone. It's got a variable ND built in, high speed 4D AF system. So the same AF that's in the S three. No, I heard that. I thought it was the same as the FX nine. It's not the same as in the S three. I think that they're very comparable. 
Um, but maybe it is slightly different. I feel like I, cause I listened to the Gerald Undone video and like, I was also trying to feed Ren at the same time, my daughter Ren. Um, so I don't know how detailed I was, but it's not, I don't, I think the, he was saying that the S3's autofocus is, is better. Um, it seems better than the mm. FX six and the FX nine both. All right. So interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And also he also talked about that the touchscreen interface is like going back to the old Sony style of it's there, but it's not very functional. It's got some weird things. I think that you have to press like to focus select, you have to press some weird button combination and then you can move the focus point. Right. There's a good chance that they'll fix that in firmware because that's just dumb. Right. Um, Yeah. uh, And that was the last thing on my quick spec list uh, was it had an LCD touchscreen that right. came in the box. So where this is fitting in the lineup is you have the FX9 above it, you have the S3 below it, mm-hmm. but exactly how it lands is weird. Like shooting raw on the FX6 is a lot easier. You can just do it with a, a Ninja V, mm-hmm. um, whereas with the FX9, I think you need like a $5,000 giant thing you mount on the back of it um there's just there's a lot of details to it that almost feel like it's not an upgrade to the fx9 but they definitely feature packed the fx6 for sure um we can go over some more of the details it matches the fx9's video capture in 4k 60 okay it has the same s cine tone s log all the hlg gammas it outputs 16-bit RAW like the FX9. Um, it offers the same ND options. It has two-channel XLR audio inputs. Well, right. There's actually a note, a note you made to me the other day that really surprised me about uh, the audio inputs on it. That they're only in the handle. Yeah, they're only in the handle. Which is, that's very... Um, odd <laughs> well yeah i mean it, they made the super compact body but to really input audio you have to put the handle which makes it bigger mm-hmm. so. and that just i'm not gonna say that that's a deal breaker from my perspective because I'm, I'm i'm not really in the market for this camera but i'm a prospective buyer over the next couple of years of these right. kind of cine right. high-end video cameras the camcorder yeah and that's really annoying because trying to get the handle in a backpack on top of the camera it, right. it really hurts the let's say the easy the ease of use like carrying it around and traveling with it right um, it, there has to have been some issue and i don't know why they don't didn't just put a 3.5 on the body like i understand not putting an xlr mm-hmm. like that takes up a lot of space but why not just put a a 3.5 on the body so you could just mm-hmm. plug in any you know and it's a weird usability comparison to the C70 because the C70 has one mini XLR right. on the camera mm-hmm. and a three and a half mil. So it has two audio inputs on the camera and then right. it also has another one in the grip itself. Uh, so basically the, the biggest thing that it also hurts it on, not just the easy to move it around and, and uh, 
and stuff like that. The other big thing it does is it makes it harder to capture audio when you're on a gimbal because the mm. the top handle just, and then the idea of using an extra mic on top of that just adds a lot of weight right. in a weird and right. kind of awkward spot. And I think you, you could, um, in theory, uh, there is a little like built-in camera mic, right? That mm-hmm. likes in any camera on the body. Um, that's, you know, you would never use for production, but you could use it as reference audio to then externally record. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, point. there, there's an, there's an option. There's um, workarounds. There's yeah. workarounds, but it just, it feels a little inexcusable that they couldn't have just put a 3.5 just in the body and not have made this an issue at all. But Indeed. anyway, I mean, that may be us just looking at it from our use case scenario, but, um, mm-hmm. but Yeah. No, it, it's an interesting camera. It is, for being so similar to the S3, mm-hmm. it is significantly more expensive. It is... Um, $6,000, basically. fifty nine yeah. ninety eight. Right, which is $2,500 more than the S3. And for that, you're getting a, you know, a camcorder body. Mm-hmm. Um, you're getting uh, Cinetone, so S-Cinetone. Um, you're getting like, it's just like the list is not that long compared to the, the you know, getting built S3. in variable NDs, a big deal. That's true. That's true. That is a big deal. Um, is, are those worth you're, you're losing stuff though, too. You have right. to, you have to factor in that you are losing the IBIS that's in the S3, mm. which you're probably making that trade off for the variable ND, although that's unclear. There's a chance that Sony just knows that big productions tend to put their cameras on tripods and gimbals and stuff and right. doesn't want to do. deal with the drama that could be added by a, a, a camcorder. I think that it, it does come down to the the body style is really where you're you're spending most of that money. You're you're getting it in a professional camcorder body which is easier to use on professional sets right yeah you're getting um, a lot more buttons and like because uh, you get shutter angle too you get things mm-hmm. like that um which you know that's nice you know yeah i mean and it's just like you can instead of looking at iso you can switch it over to gain which is just that's like a cinema thing they do even, right because right. that's what iso really kind of is right yeah and <laughs> That sounds silly as like a thing to point out, but if you're dealing with a cinema world where everyone's really used to shutter angle and used to calling ISO gain and used to having a camera with NDs and used to having a camera with multiple audio inputs and so on and so forth, $2,500 is nothing. They won't even think about that. Right. But I wanted to ask you if... I want you to sort of build an argument for why, as like a YouTube creator, you'd buy the FX6 and why maybe you wouldn't. Um, I don't know that I can come up with an argument for. Like, um, there's, as a YouTube creator, like the the S3 makes way more sense. I don't think there's an argument for. Um, You have more user-friendly interface. Um, It's cheaper. Um, There's so many accessories and everything else that goes with it. Um, I, you know, it's more portable. Um, you can vlog with it. Like you can't really vlog with the, the FX six. 
Mm-hmm. Um, not really. I mean, I guess you could technically if you really, really wanted to, but like if there's uh I, I can't come up with an argument for like the argument I would actually come up with is a situation like not that we're buying an FX six. This shooting situation would be probably a better experience with an FX six. A you have your camera on a tripod, so the size doesn't really matter. Mm. You have two XLR ends, so we could just literally take these mics and plug them into the camera as opposed to having an external uh, recording source. So mm. that would be one example. And then, of course, also if you do professional work on the side, you're not just a YouTuber. Uh, there right. is an advantage to just in some ways having a bigger camera it lets you charge more right and look more professional yeah i i guess i can see it i'm not very convinced by it though <laughs> like you know um it, it, it i guess the two xlr inputs would be nice but like you know i also don't mind this uh the roadcaster is in a lot of ways probably better than that recording straight to the camera mm. um what we're actually getting um at the end of the day with it um, so, you know, yes, you can, I guess I can see where you're coming from, but that's not really, that's not where I would go with it. Um, mm. I, I still would advise it. Um, and, and what's interesting is though, is that I could see the C70, um, even though it's not full frame, um, I see more of an argument for that, for a YouTube creator. For one thing, the form factor is more traditional, mm. um, DSLR, um, mirrorless, like it has, a, you know, it's chong, it's a chonky, mm-hmm. but it's about three and a half pounds, I think. Yeah, yeah, Something no, it's like it's that. chonky, but it it um, it's kind of a, an in between, and I think that I can see more of an argument for that, um, mm. as far as for a YouTube creator, and then also, I mean, I guess like look what it's competing against, like the R five. If you're just doing video, if you're looking at the C seventy versus the R five the C70 probably makes more sense unless you need 8K. Mm-hmm. Um, or you really need full frame. But there's even an option to work around that with that um, mm-hmm. uh, speed boost adapter that basically turns, converts over a lens into full frame onto mm-hmm. an APS-C sensor. So. Yeah, and that's the first time we've seen a, uh, a, a main camera brand produce a speed booster, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and maybe one of the only times we actually see them do that because it seems like they're all getting very centralized on full frame being their, their main, their main. That is a discussion we should have at some point as to like, there's rumors. There's actually been rumors, um, this week that Canon is working on, um, on an APS for RRP RF body, an APS-C RF body. But, um, it does seem like a full frame is kind of the path forward mm-hmm. for pro and semi-pro cameras and even to some degree enthusiast cameras. Well, I think that the uh, Z5, is that what it's called? Yes. Z5, like some of these cameras, Z5, Canon RP, um, the Sony, I mean the, the Sony's cheapest full frame camera, they didn't really make it super, super cheap. But the A7C, particularly yeah. the... Um, the Z5 and the RP, like they're gonna be, they're gonna be five hundred dollar cameras soon, and that's still a little. Uh, I feel like about five hundred dollars is what most people are gonna spend anyway, right? And you're just right. spending a couple hundred more to get full frame. So, I, I actually could see there this 
I could see there being a place for a professional APS-C RF camera. Um, right. Well, could, and for video, because it's mm-hmm. Super 35, which is like a, a kind of a standard format and, and aspect ratio for video. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like in some ways, in, in video circles, Super 35 is as professional as full frame. Well, if they put, just just saying, if they if they gave me an RF camera that has 4K 120 in it, um, whether it's APS-C or not, that's, let's say, around $2,000. I'm going to be right. very interested in that because it, it is easier to handle stuff like heat and everything else. Right, because the sensor's smaller. It's, you know... Yeah, it's smaller, and it's... I mean, maybe you could get that stabilized, too, which would be awesome. Right, um, right, You right. could get some features in there that I would really be respond to, responsive to. But I think that the... Kind of to round out the FX6 conversation... Uh, is to kind of do a direct comparison between it and the C70 spec sheet wise. Uh, the the main big difference between these cameras is going to be the price. Is there's a five hundred dollar difference. The C70 is fifty four ninety nine. The FX6 is fifty nine ninety eight. And the other difference is going to be full frame. You get full frame with the FX6. And right. I would say you also get full size XLR, and you also get raw out. So these are oh, that's these are true. Three, those are three big features. The features I would say that the F that the C seventy can come back with is kind of what you were saying. It's really not. It's the first time we've seen a. And this is what's exciting about the C seventy to me. Right, it is a. I don't know exactly how to say this. It's it's the finally somebody took a stills camera and made all the changes you'd want to it for video as opposed to making a video camera in a stills body. Right. They made it mm. slightly bigger. They put in the built-in NDs. Um, they put in mini XLRs. So you can use bigger mics with, uh, I mean, like we're using right now. You can use large right. condenser microphones, professional audio stuff. Uh, and they they maintained some of the stuff you expect from a C line camera, and that that morph is something I've been sort of watching for for a long time. You know, the GH five series was kind of dancing around doing it. The S three series is dancing around doing it, but in the end, they're really just stills cameras with modifications on them. And the C seventy right. stills is the design. Start. Stills they're still they're video. They really are video cameras, but the the design of them and the the way that you use them is still mm-hmm. more stills than video. Well, yeah, and they, they would cram stuff in them like uh, the GH5 has a 20 megapixel sensor, which maybe helps and hurts the video performance. Mm. I mean, all these cameras we're talking about right now, say what you will about downsampling, these are professional video cameras made for videographers, and they all have near one-to-one pixel readout. Um, right, with, right, with the sensors, yeah. With barely any downsampling. And that seems to be a consistent theme um, continuing forward, with the exception of the FX9. I think the FX9 does shoot 6K and does downsample 6K as well. Um, but with the C70, what you have is a a camera that's taking what we've learned from the DSLR video revolution Mm-hmm. and what videographers have been using and loving since they started making digital camcorders. Right. Um, with the buttons and the size and the built-in NDs and all of that. 
and combining them together. And in that way, the FX6 and the C70, even though they're priced similarly and the specs are very similar, I don't actually think that they're very well comparable because right. one seems like it's built for the one man band that needs to go out and get some footage. And the other one seems like a camera for productions, even though everything else seems kind of similar when you look at the, the physical casing that it's in. Right. You, you really see that difference. Right. And I also think that, um, that the, the, the C70 also has the, the full on, um, dual pixel autofocus, whereas mm-hmm. the FX6 has not quite Sony's best autofocus. And I, I'd be interested as to why it seems kind of touchy, the autofocus with it just in general, um, mm-hmm. because uh, for reasons I, I don't, I don't feel like I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, cause I'm, I, I, you know, I understand a lot about video, but you know, I still stills is still my primary um, focus, but you know, I understand some, but like, you know, some of the stuff I don't track the, uh, I've been tracking them more, but I don't, I haven't, you know, historically tracked all the different cine cameras like the FX nine. I knew it exists, existed, but, um, I didn't really, you know, know what made it amazing versus, you know, whatever. Well, I think that to kind of end off with the FX nine, the FX six causes problems with the FX nine. It really does because what is amazing about it is a little bit up in the air now. I feel like, uh, yeah, it does kind of um, seem like that. Looking at the them compared, mm-hmm. like it's, um, I uh, I don't see what the oh the FX nine price is um, eleven thousand. It's eleven thousand, so it's a, it's a lot more expensive. It's a lot more expensive, and it's also a lot larger. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, now it it is made for the and even another level of that production set. And I'm sure it has tons of little nuts and bolts. If you could get somebody in here that owns one, they could explain to you why. I'm sure there's videos on YouTube that do. But for your everyday creator, it's completely, I don't know why you'd even really why, look yeah, at why, it. why you'd even look at it. Yeah, no, no joke. Whereas the C70, honestly, like the S3 is probably, like if you're a YouTube creator starting out for video and that's kind of what you're jumping into. The S3 is probably your best option right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you can make arguments for the R5. You could make arguments, but it's still probably the best option. The C70 is in that argument um, for kind of a next step up. Although I think you probably would want to be doing some production work to really make that extra, um, in that case, $2,000 um, worth mm-hmm. it. Um I think it also comes down in that way. How much are you using the camera? How mm. much are you having to either rely on workarounds like recording externally or not being able to shoot redundant audio? And you know, how much are you dealing with external ND drama, which there definitely is external ND drama. Oh yeah, um, for sure. Anything from color casts to weird flares to whatever, even when you buy the, the top of the line, so I, I think that it a lot of it comes down to how much are you making off the camera financially? Because if you're making a lot, then, you know, in, in this case, what is that, $2,000? Isn't that big of a deal necessarily? Right, right. If you're not making anything off your camera, $2,000 is a huge deal. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's almost, you know, you, you've definitely done some work to free up 
3500 if you're not making any money off your camera to begin with. Right. Um, so I, I think that that's a really interesting question. Probably comes down to more which ecosystem you're already in than we like right, to think it right. does. Um, well, and then, I mean, you get on YouTube lately and everybody's just switching around like crazy. And, you know, we've done our fair share of switching around this year too, but it's just kind of gone bonkers with like um, people buying R5s and then switching to S3s and then some people switching to C70s from the S3 and like mm-hmm. it's just kind of kind of gone crazy with, with all mm-hmm. that. There's actually a really excellent video. Um, I think maybe, if, I won't call out the name because I can't think of it right now, but I'll, I'll link it in the description. I'll find it for you. But he talks about why people, why YouTubers switch cameras. And it's that they actually make money off of switching because you can make videos about switching. And um, that can oftentimes at least make up a lot of the difference, especially if you have equipment to sell to make up a lot of the, the price. Right. So I think that's something you do have to keep in mind. If you can make videos for an audience about new cameras and that's something they like, that's something you're incentivized to do, which I don't actually think is a bad thing. I just think it can definitely make this weird thing where if you're out of that market, switching is this huge, difficult, costly thing to do. Mm. So you really have to be convinced to do it or you should be really convinced to do it. Whereas for someone that has an audience to sort of support their switching, um, it can turn into, well, I just want to see what that's like. And, you know, you're going to make money or break even. It doesn't matter as much. Right. Right. I mean, that's, you know, it's very true. And it, um, yeah, and, and they definitely, the switching videos get a lot of, you know, people really pay attention, you know, and and uh, and sometimes there's some weird logic stuff that happens. And I think it's also important, like, when you're, when you're looking at YouTube for a lot of your information, like, there's no vetting going on with mm-hmm. YouTube videos. Like, I mean, even if you're watching us right now, you know, no one's vetting our like we're not a uh, a you know a um, uh, press you know yeah, we're there's not there's the, no editor being like are these guys saying anything accurate like or, yeah like you know we're just we're just recording this and then putting it up on YouTube so and you know when you do that you get a lot of things like bias mm-hmm. and then you're also you're you're dealing with um, you know people's opinions and and decisions you know, and they're just, you know, most of the time they're just an individual who's built a following. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's no, you know, the, the backing it up, you know, you need to kind of look at it that way, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, if your friend switched, um, that you knew personally, you know, you would look at it a different way than, you know, a, a, uh, consumer reports or something telling you to switch, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and YouTubers kind of fall somewhere in between. They might have a lot of experience with a lot of different things, but they're still just an individual mm-hmm. with an opinion and, a, you know, different use cases and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and those opinions can be very valuable uh, to helping you make smart decisions. But I think it's also important to remember, uh, I've had this thought in my head of like specs are are in a different hierarchy for different creators. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. people, 
as opposed to really trying to sort through what is the most important thing. Is it usability? Is it autofocus? Is it resolution? Is it lenses that I can afford to buy for this camera or, or sharpness or these different things? Right. What is that hierarchy and making sure that you're not letting other people switch it around, like putting, letting other people put 4K at the top of your list when that doesn't matter or letting mm-hmm. other people put primes and shallow depth of field at the top of your list when maybe that isn't actually the direction you want to go. Right. So to make sure you're deciding, I will, I want to optimize for X, Y, or Z. I'm not necessarily letting other people put uh, a great example. Of this is raw video at the top of your list. Right. Um, raw video is really hard to use mm-hmm. and you don't need it. That I mean, I guess you probably don't need it as often as maybe you'd think. It just, the uses are way different. I think a lot of people with raw video and honestly, like, you know, tying it into the YouTuber thing, this is the way a lot of YouTubers treat it mm-hmm. is that it's the same as raw photos. Like, well, of course you're going to shoot raw photos. So why wouldn't you want to shoot raw video? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you should talk to your computer about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like, you know, there are definitely times where raw video is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not nearly as often as, as raw photos. There's, to me, in my opinion, there's never a time when a photo um, is uh, worse off being in 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 raw versus a JPEG. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are some people who swear by shooting their their JPEGs because they like to save space or you know whatever. But generally speaking, a photo is going to come out better raw than JPEG. It just is, and video is not necessarily the same thing. Like, you know, you have to kind of be in a situation where raw is really utilized in order for it to be worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's 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 really fun to talk about how this camera shoots raw and this one doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. and it make, just makes it sound like, wow, this, it's like, a, it would be like if the, um, if the, you know, the 6D, you know, shot only JPEGs and the 5D shot raw, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, that would be, it, it's not that difference. The difference is not mm-hmm. that. Well, and, and when you say it's not the same, you mean that very literally they're not as, there's not as much information in most video raw files as there is in most stills raw files. Right. So when someone talks about their red camera shooting raw, that's that's extremely close to what your camera shoots, your stills camera shoots raw photos. Mm-hmm. It's called Cinema DNG. It's it's not exactly DNGs, but it's a very, very close. Mm-hmm. I'll let other people that are a little bit more knowledgeable on that say, but anything from Blackmagic raw to ProRes raw to all these different things there, they're basically steps toward a true raw video future that I think mm. is coming. Um, but the they still are compressed. And right. some of them, like, I, I won't get super into the weeds because it's extremely confusing. I can't, ex- I would have to do research to do a video on it. But, you know, ProRes RAW on the, F- on the Z6 is not the same as ProRes RAW on the S1H. They have mm. different advantages and disadvantages and they're really good with color and that one's really good with dynamic range, but they're not opening up the full breadth. So raw is just generally a confusing raw video is just a, an area that's just rife to get confused in. Right. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, um, and again, you know, like I'm not an expert in it. I wouldn't necessarily listen to all my advice about raw video, but 
Um, I probably know as much as a lot of people who've made videos about raw video on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that's something to keep in mind is that, you know, like, where is this person coming from? You know, they're super ramped about this feature. And and it does feel like um, it's starting to be, like, I felt like on YouTube um, a few years ago, everyone was negative Nancy about every new camera. Mm-hmm. Um, like, every new camera just was held to the standard that it just couldn't um, live up to. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of flipped to now where everything new, every new thing is the best thing ever and is, you know, worth, you know, selling the farm to switch to. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm not quite sure why we had that culture shift. Um, I think part of it is is that the camera brands are definitely more involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I'm not going to start a conspiracy theory about who's being paid what. Because mm-hmm. that's just that's that's what comment sections are for, and mm-hmm. you know, then not what podcasts are for. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do feel like brands are more involved; they're more hands-on with the YouTube community than ever before. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like, like you know, a couple of years ago, we had you know where they were sending people on trips and stuff, and I feel like that that was a little in less taste. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, like, you know, uh, like look at the, the uh, ZV-1. Was it ZV-1, the little compact Sony thing? ZV-1, yeah. yeah. Earlier this year. Like Sony made sure that was in the hands of so many YouTubers. Mm-hmm. And the day they announced it, there were so many videos on YouTube about what it was like, you know? And, you know, so it's a wave of information that in some ways Sony created, you know, in in so much as that they sent out all those ZV-1s early, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the S3, the R5 to some degree, um, I think the R5 was a little less so. It kind of took a while for actual information on the R5 to really get mm-hmm. out there. Um, they were definitely like Peter McKinnon, but Peter McKinnon, he even said he was sponsored by Well, they had him Canon. do the launch video. They had him do the launch video, um, which in some ways, as an, as kind of annoyed by that as I was, it's also, you know, it is somewhat above board, you know? It's like, well, mm-hmm. I did this for Canon. I got hired by Canon to do it. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, he didn't have to do a super, like a five-minute intro on, like, how they acquired the camera and how what they're about to say is unbiased. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I don't believe them. I just think that like an environment is being created by the brands, irregardless mm-hmm. of how biased or unbiased you claim to be mm-hmm. um, as a YouTube creator. Well, and there's still a, uh, a selection bias towards, I want to own the best camera mm-hmm. period, not right. I want to own the best camera for me, That's which is true. So many things go into the best camera for you. Anything from the budget to how much video versus stills you do to exactly what you photograph and exactly what you do shoot video of. Right. The perfect camera for you or the best, let's not say perfect. Let's say the best camera for you on the market is almost certainly different than the person next to you. And you may Mm. not even own the perfect camera for you, but it's important to remember that, um, Peter McKinnon saying he found the best camera for him. Right. It doesn't make it the best camera for you. Right. Well, and I'm not really trying to say that sponsorships are all bad. And I don't think it's all bad that Sony is sending out cameras super early where we have all of these FX6 
videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, the day that Sony announces that there's so many of them. And, um, and I, I don't think that's bad. I just think it's, it's important to be aware of it. Um, just, you know, like, well, you know, Sony, all these videos exist because Sony sent out these cameras, right? Well, what does that mean? You know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it means that Sony sells cameras because I mean, really where you, where it leads to is that Sony sells cameras because of YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Um, Canon sells cameras because of YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. That's probably how they, I mean, the, the community, the photography community is definitely living on YouTube right now more so than anywhere else. I feel like, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and so they kind of know that. So, you know, it's important just to remember the environment that you're hearing all of these things from. And like, if you, as you zoom out, you can see how it's affecting that environments being affected by all of a sudden every new camera that comes out is best thing ever, super, you know, amazing, you know, mm-hmm. and in flaws get upplayed and downplayed to some degree. But I think overall, like, you know, for instance, a downplay, I mean, a flaw that was upplayed is the overheating on the R5, you know, mm-hmm. it was kind of made out to be this huge thing. And, and Canon has also worked on it to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it also the narrative gets locked and the cameras themselves don't. So even if someday the R5 doesn't overheat at all, there will be two videos that are about that entire thing and then 20 videos that have that are that were made when the R5 was brand new and it overheated. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's this information. It, it basically the idea of the camera gets locked into how it was when it was launched. And I think that's an interesting thing because even the narrative about it versus its competition, its competition changes. So a camera can go from top dog to, you know, actually not that great, but the, the, um, the videos that were produced when it came out, they don't talk about these cameras because they weren't out yet. Right. There's a lot of, I just it's it's important to use it kind of an aggregate of information when right. you're making purchasing decisions as opposed right. to what this one person said at this one time. Right, and I don't think it's bad information. I don't think these that that you're getting bad information from a YouTuber who got sent a camera early. I don't think it's bad information. I think it's good information. I just think it's important that when there is this amount of information because really what's happening is is that we, before we purchase a camera or do whatever with a camera, we can get more information about it than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and really this applies to anything. Anything that you are interested in purchasing, there's probably a YouTube video about it somewhere. There's probably, mm-hmm. there might be even 10 YouTube videos about it. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's important to, when, you, when you're ingesting that information, to think about, like where it's coming from, why it's coming from, and you know all of that, mm-hmm. um, and and do it in a more um, intelligent way than just like oh well, this person's being paid off, because mm-hmm. I actually don't think that's happening very often. I have never, you know, maybe there's been a few times I've been suspicious that I'm like okay this this smells funny, mm-hmm. but um, but certainly not as often as. Uh, um, as people accuse, you know, everybody of it, like, mm-hmm. um, like the big YouTubers, Tony Northrup, um, 
uh, uh, Jared Polin, everybody gets accused Mm -hmm. of being a sellout for, you know, blah, blah, blah brand. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to remember that people can have extreme opinions without actually, uh, um, people can have really extreme opinions about stuff without uh, actually being paid to hold those opinions about them. So if somebody really doesn't like Nikon, there's a decent chance that they just really don't like Nikon. And the bias is probably more likely that they just, for some reason, really don't like it, as opposed to they're getting paid by Sony to hate Nikon. Right, Like yeah. I feel like people jump to that because it's... I think it's almost more of a, of a weird trend to hold that opinion about people then it's the most likely reason why someone might be biased. Right. Yeah, I agree. It, it's, 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 um, it's, it, well, it's an easy way to attack, um, mm-hmm. an opinion either you don't like, or, um, you know, th- there's, we, we talked about this in the brand loyalty video where, um, I mean, it's prevalent in just our culture in general right now. People are believing what they want to believe and then they find the information that they mm-hmm. um, that supports their that opinion. supports their opinion, or they just create new information, or they just believe what they want to believe, and then just mm-hmm. tell everybody they're wrong based with no factual basis at all. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're recording this in late 2020, and I think anybody can kind of uh, relate think about relate issue. to that and, and think about some examples in the the larger world where this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, and I think it's important to try to try to ride above that and um, and you know not just accuse um, these YouTubers and and all these reviews of of you know doing anything um, nefarious. nefarious, yeah. But at the same time, you need to you know keep in mind you know why why this review how this review came to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, kind of think about you know how um, all of it relates to each other in 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 your um, decision-making, mm-hmm. you know? Indeed. All right. Do we want to move on to our next topic? I suppose we should. I guess we've been going on. This is going to be a long one, so. Indeed. So the last topic on today is we're going to talk about camera adventure backpacks and versus climbing backpacks. And in kind of like to start. Standard outdoor backpacks. Yeah, outdoor uh, outdoor backpacks would kind of like to start this conversation by asking kind of your journey, maybe not backpack to backpack, but your journey oh, with well, uh, deciding to purchase. Uh, well, I mean, I guess really what it comes down to is, is like there are advantages and disadvantages to a backpack being designed to carry a camera. Um, and, you know, it designed just to being able to carry, you know, everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have, you know, there's there's trade-offs. And what I'm struggling with right now is figuring out, like, um, uh, like I, you know, for a long time I used just standard, you know, outdoor backpacks and then just kind of various ways that I carried my camera in there. And then, you know, I used brands like F-Stop and Shimoda, which are, you know, camera, um, the bags are, are designed to carry cameras with, you know, internal camera cubes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Back access. Back and access all and that all that stuff. kind of thing. And, um, 
And there's definitely advantages to being able to, you know, just unzip the back panel and all your stuff's there. And it, it can be more protected, um, in some, in some ways, but there, I've not found those bags. Uh, first off, they tend to always be heavy. They don't send, tend to take, um, some of the, um, ethos of like an outdoor backpack into, um, into my account as, as mm-hmm. much as I, I think maybe they should. Um, they, they tend to be very heavy, just the bag itself. Mm-hmm. Then you have to put the insert in there, which adds weight. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so like, you know, you just put the, the camera equipment and the bag itself and you're already, you know, very heavy. Whereas like, you know, um, other backpacks, they, the materials are lighter. Um, they're designed to, carry everything the the whole um they're less it's about getting the stuff out quickly and more at carrying on your back comfortably comfortably mm-hmm. so um i think it's kind of that juxtaposition of of it that that's kind of tricky they've yet to um there's yet a camera backpack that i've found that just it carries like a, I still feel like when I'm hauling it over the miles that I'm like, this is a camera backpack. It still kind of feels like a camera backpack. It's mm. they're boxier, um, they're heavier. They just that's kind mm. of what they are. They just that's the nature of it, I guess. I suppose the the question is 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 it really the camera backpack's design that's the problem, um, or is it just the fact that carrying lots of heavy camera equipment just is a problem. I think, I think it's both. I, I kind of wish that, um, that, uh, camera and backpack manufacturers would take a step back from making sure that the camera stuff is all squared away and incorporate more of, like I said, the ethos of an, of a, uh, backcountry backpack, mm-hmm. um, lightweight, very comfortable and then also not focus so much on um like how comfortable the the camera area is and you know everything else for instance um on every single on both f-stop and shimoda if you're going to use a water bladder you have to put it on the pocket on the front Mm -hmm. of um and if you're carrying two to three liters of water it's the heaviest single item in your backpack Mm -hmm. and it's hanging off of the front of your backpack so it's it's basically very far away from your. It's back. very far away from your spine, mm-hmm. and like I guess the accumulation of your camera gear is heavier, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also not. It's also more spread out, just by its very nature. Unless you know you're carrying um, a uh, two hundred to six hundred or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I guess you can create a scenario where a single item is heavier, right? But still, two to three liters of water is very heavy, and it's very far from your back. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I don't have an, an obvious solution to that other than that when I just stick my camera in my backpack and then the water is right next to my back, that tends to ride better. Mm-hmm. Um, like I have a, a, uh, um, a black diamond climbing pack. That's like, I think it's like 24 liters maybe. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've climbed a lot of 14ers in it and the water is right next to my back. And then the camera is in it just Normally it's in like one of those shoulder bags or whatever. There's been Mm -hmm. various things that I've carried it in and that is more comfortable weight wise. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, it feels like overall everything's closer to your back. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it'd be nice if they were, and honestly, part of it is, is that they're selling to photographers and the, the kick, the quote unquote Kickstarter videos need to talk about how good it is at carrying camera gear. And then they can talk a little bit about like, oh yeah, it will also carry all this other gear. Mm. And I'm like, all that other gear is really important when you're out. Like, you know, (laughs) I mean, I guess the question is, is what percentage of their buyers are taking it a mile or less from their car and yeah. what percentage of their buyers are actually that, putting in 12 mile days. That would be fascinating to know is how many people buy like F stop. I mean, I know that a lot of people who buy F stop bags and stuff like you see them. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen like a, in a, like a documentary or whatever, somebody using an, uh, a Shimoda bag yet, but I've definitely seen people using F stop bags. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, the one about Kilimanjaro that we watched, the ice on Kilimanjaro, which mm-hmm. is very good. Um, probably should check that out. Um, but there's two guys in that video, um, in that film, carrying f-stop bags. So it definitely happens, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a use case for it. But at the same time, I think a lot of people like that they just wind up sticking their cameras in their regular outdoor bags. Mm. Um, so I, I don't, the thing is, is that we're talking about this. I don't know that I have a great solution. Um, well, I think that you've touched on a couple of things that could be solutions though. I think that one thing is, is that I think that keeping stuff safe inside the bag is their number one thrust a lot of the time. So it's like the bag is waterproof. Mm. The bag is robust. Right. Um, there's lots of padding around the camera gear. And I feel like you could actually make an argument for having the camera gear protected in wherever they are. Like they almost always, you would almost always want it in a case that's got padding on the sides and stuff. Right. Um, no, I've never regardless. just wrapped it in a jacket before. Exactly. And even then, technically <laughs> speaking, it's pretty padded, you know? Right. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. So like focus on that, but then beyond that, you don't actually need the exterior materials of the bag to be as robust as they are. Um, I think that something they're very focused on is when you put the bag on, it's extremely comfortable. That's where the heavy uh, structure inside the bag and everything else kind of comes from. Because when you put on a a bullet pack that has no metal structure to it at all. Right. It's just it's just the straps that strap it to you, and then you can strap everything else down. When you first put a backpack like that on, it can feel kind of like it's bulging into your back. Mm-hmm. That's Not true. That comfortable, but as you hike, what's in the bag because it's and you know they're not really expecting you to have camera lenses and stuff. Expecting it to be jackets and food and. You know, maybe you're you're lashing to the outside of the bag, snowshoes mm-hmm. or an ice axe or something. Right. Um, you can get to this really comfortable situation. I think a huge problem with camera bags is that the actual act of carrying cameras comfortably is is hard, and it's definitely yeah, hard. General. And every time you add a lens or a microphone or um, really anything you need, a second camera, anything you might want, a light, right. um, you are adding some sort of variable that, you know, is 
not a lot of people have the need to carry that, which is part of the problem. You know, mm-hmm. we can only have so many companies that are trying to, to pursue that. But, uh, you know, fragile, heavy things are just not, not going to be easy to take into the mountains or the desert or wherever. So you feel like this is, I mean, part of me is just kind of resigned to that, like, you know, I'll be dealing with it um, to some degree. I, I don't know that there's a, a perfect design. I'm sure that, well, it's, it's obviously something a lot of people have taken a crack at. And again, I do feel like um, part of me wishes that, I, I think what I'm seeing right now with a lot of the the adventure camera bags is that they start with a camera bag and then make it more like a adventure backpack, mm-hmm. you know? And what I would like to see is them start with an adventure backpack and try to make it more of a camera bag. Mm-hmm. I think that that some of the the systems would um, um, you you'd adjust some of the systems and the way that it rides and 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 not so boxy mm-hmm. and not so heavy. You know, use materials like it's like you said. The only thing that really needs to be waterproof is um, although you can make lightweight waterproof. Like Arteryx makes some yeah. bags that are waterproof. That um, that are very light. Waterproof may be the wrong word. It may be more. It seems like they want to make them rip proof. Yeah, or just um, yeah. What? And it's it's not that I've really like. So right now I'm prim- primarily using the Shimoda Action X. The brand new system. The, it's a it's you know it's a brand new system. You're about a year old now, so mm-hmm. you know fairly new. And um, and overall I really like them. But like yesterday we went on a long hike mm-hmm. and i used the the 30 liter version so the smallest version i had a one body two lenses and all my other stuff and mm-hmm. i'm like this is heavier and less comfortable than it needs to be for what i'm carrying mm-hmm. and i just kept having that thought all day i'm just like you know because we went 12 miles we went 4500 feet of gain mm-hmm. um you know in the mountains and i just kept thinking i'm like i'm not carrying that much like mm-hmm. i'm really not and this is kind of heavy. This is kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't feel like it needed to be for, you know, that far. And, you know, and, you know, if you go for a, a one mile, two mile hike, I, I probably wouldn't have noticed it for one thing. I wouldn't even thought about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after I've gone that far and that steep, um, it definitely stood out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I used the camera over the summer and, you know, I kind of, the, the bag over the summer and, and, you know, some days were better than others depending on kind of what was in it. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I do think that balance issues, um, become a lot more real with the camera bags. I think that's part of the reason why over the course of a day, I'll, I'll dive into more why I think it's such a, a problem. Um, but uh, over the course of the day, the fact that your camera bag is off balance, like maybe it's kind of a little bit more heavy towards the back of the pack on one side because you have a tripod there or something else, um, that's going mm. to cause it to be a, out of balance, which could cause a hip to get sore or your yep. other shoulder to get sore or the shoulder yep. on that side get to get a little tired. Um, and I think that specifically these... Um, the camera backpacks offer this, let's say, oper- unique opportunities for giant empty cavities 
to be in your bag where there's just nothing there. Mm. Uh, I carry my camera on the outside a ton. And uh, because of that, they'll, I'll have a spot in the bag for the camera, mm-hmm. but there's nothing there. So randomly at the bottom of the pack or in the middle of the pack, there's just this giant space, <laughs> this giant with, hole <laughs> with nothing in it for the whole day. But I want it there. Cause I want to be able to put the camera away if it rains or, mm-hmm. or if I'm doing, you know, more technical moves or, or something, I want to be able to put the camera away in the bag. So that can cause an imbalance if the camera insert is not perfectly positioned to be well balanced as well as accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think that the one huge thing I would tell them to consider rethinking is I think that the zipper to open up the camera bag should actually be on the, on the back of the bag. So as opposed to it being up against your back, that's where the suspension and the water should probably go. And the quick Mm. access part of the bag should be the back. Right. I've definitely seen a few bags like that, but again, they're not really full on hiking bags, Mm -hmm. but I, I, I I definitely think that that's, that is um, possible. Or just what something that I'm starting tried. to wonder though is just by the nature of it, because like you talk about them being the empty spaces, mm-hmm. but something that happens with a um, with a regular hiking bag mm-hmm. or a climbing bag, right, is that if something's not in it, it the, that air the the bag kind of moves in on itself and mm-hmm. gets naturally smaller. Whereas that is not the case with the camera bag, like you said. Mm-hmm. Because everything's so divided up, you have this area of the bag is for cameras, this area of the bag is for your jackets, and then you have a pocket on the front for your water and whatever else, and then your mm-hmm. tripod's tracked to the side, and then you stick food in wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you make it all where it's like one space, you take something out and it, it compacts in on itself, mm-hmm. and so you're actually carrying less on your back, you know, mass-wise. Mm-hmm you know, or area wise, I guess I don't mean mass. I mean, area and the, and the weight drops lower to your hips. Exactly. It drops lower. So, um, and I think that, that like the big issue though, with just using a regular hiking bag is, is access. Mm-hmm. It just like, if everything's all in one pocket, all piled together, that gets hard um, and especially if you want to take, you know, you, the shot in a hurry, mm-hmm. either you need to have the camera already out, which is, which is one solution. That's normally what you do mm-hmm. is you kind of have yours out all the time. Whereas I tend to put mine away and take it out and put it away mm-hmm. and take it out. Um, so anyway, I think, you know, we're kind of going ring around the rosy a little bit, but because, you know, that's kind of the nature of it. Mm-hmm. I don't. I will be interesting. I, I would love to see. I'll probably always be on a quest to some degree, but um, I, I would just love, like, if you know, if if someone from one of these adventure camera bag videos is listening, I, I would love to see what they would do if they started out with a more standard, like, like an idea would be is to take like one of the, a a roll top climbing type bag, right? Mm -hmm. Everything goes in and out of the top, which is, that's very standard for like a climbing backpack or a mountaineering backpack is that everything goes in and out of the top. Mm -hmm. There's no pockets on the sides, which a is a failure point and the zippers add weight and all of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. But what if in, in inside you could, you could do some dividing like, um, 
like just had an area where you could stick um, like a, a camera case, you know, uh, a, a camera case or, or something along mm-hmm. those lines and then have another area where you could stick, you know, your clothes or whatever. But like you take the camera case out and it doesn't really affect the structure of the bag other than to make it smaller, you know? Mm-hmm. Like you said, you don't have this giant empty hole, um, but there's some ability to organize in there. Mm-hmm. And and you'd also know where you were reaching for in your bag. So I, I'm kind of picturing like a a like a, just a, a cloth piece like going th- down the middle or something. Mm-hmm. And then on one side you could stick your your camera bag thing. The other side you could stick your clothes and everything. And then the water could go right next to your bag, mm-hmm. your back. I mean I don't know. C- could it work? Maybe, but it could. I think that one issue you could run into is the camera gear is going to weigh a lot more than your jackets. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely issues that you're going to run into, but uh, yeah, I, I think that it's uh, it's just such a weird the access problem. It's been a while since we actually had a major access problem because we've both been using camera bags for two years, basically. Yeah, two, in the mountains. Years, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but I remember having a lot of situations where you're trying to get your camera out, and there's straps getting stuck on stuff, and jackets being pulled out with the camera bag, and and all this drama so that's where i think you can turn into not quite a dilemma necessarily but this weird thing where you're trying to choose between the moment when you're actually capturing stuff that experience versus the moment when you're slogging on the trail which one of those is is more important you're first to kind of pick and i think most of the time you end up picking you mean you're out there to get the photos so you kind of pick the photos right but Um, would you be able to go further and faster? I think there's an argument that you can. I think it's, uh, I think it's just it's a little less tangible to take that risk. But this may be a uh, something we'll have to talk it's about. It's going to be an more. ongoing discussion, I think, because and we may have some ideas. And honestly, if you guys have some ideas, you should leave some comments. Yeah, for sure. But we should wrap up for today. It's been oh, a long yeah. one. It has been. And, um, but, uh, yeah. So if you guys do have any comments, questions or whatever, please, um, if you're listening via podcast, um, you could either hop onto YouTube and leave a comment on the corresponding video, or, um, you could reach out to, um, us on Instagram at SummitBid, um, you know, something of that nature. And then mm-hmm. if you're watching this on, on YouTube, then just go ahead and just comment right down below. <laughs> Indeed. Super yeah. easy. And, uh, yeah, so um, thanks so much for listening. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and have talk- a great rest of your day. Yeah, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.